Welcome back to State of the Art. I'm Trey Borden, and it's time for another episode where this month, we're exploring what it's like to be a Black creative. Last week, I spoke with Layla Weefor, where we got deep into issues of Black identity, the Black body, Black History Month, and Layla's current solo show, Between Beauty and Horror, which opened last Friday at the Aggregate Space Gallery in Oakland. I hope some of you made the opening. If not, check it out. Today, we are going to hear from artist Martin Alexander Spratland Eaton. He's born and raised in Long Beach, which is one of LA's few remaining diverse beach towns. And he's going to discuss his experience being mixed race, how he's come to love his name, how his time as a D1 athlete playing predominantly white sports has influenced his art practice where he explores his identity and asks, who are you? Please welcome Martin. Martin, um, I'm going to start off by saying your full name. It is Martin Alexander Spratlin Etam. Um, and that's quite a mouthful. Obviously, my name is William Sutton Borden III, so I know a little bit about that life. But um, tell me a, kind of about how you began using that full name in your art practice and kind of why, why is that important? Um, it's important to me because I think it's sort of um, one of the basis of my um, art practice is self-exploration and um, self-understanding and self-love. Uh, growing up, so I used to go just by Martin Edom. Um, I didn't even really like telling people my last name was Edom in the beginning, just because growing up as a overweight kid in those younger grades, uh, Edom is a great name to rhyme with all types of different overeating and overindulgence. Couldn't, so couldn't be better. It, it couldn't have been like a, a more perfect match for anybody trying to make fun of me. Um, so in the beginning, it was a really, it was, uh, something I was very self-conscious about because of how, of my size. And, um, you know, you're at a young age where that stuff really affects you, you know, people calling you names based on that. Um, and so this leads into the larger part of my art practice of just, uh, finding out about myself, learning how to, you know, love myself and learning how to, um, accept and understand like who I am. You know, so all that sort of self-introspection, self-thought, you know, just really taking time to think like, you know, who am I? What am I trying to do? What is my purpose? Where do I belong? Um, All that stuff came from, you know, self-education experience. And um, through all that, you know, I've learned to love every aspect of my name, you know, Martin Alexander Spratlinetum, you know, I would, um, it's something I'm very proud out of now going through what I've gone through and just having a better understanding of who I am and where I'm going. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit into why I, I really try to, uh, put that in my work. I want to be addressed that way. I want that to be on any exhibition that I'm in because it's really just a sign of, um, well more than the sign, but it's just something that I'm proud of now. Something that it's like, I overcame that, that overcame, overcame Edom. <laughs> I overcame them to um, story of a story yeah. of redemption. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, and so speaking about your background, because like you know, in this in this podcast during this month, we've been discussing this idea of kind of being black and kind of how your identity figures into an art practice and what spaces you occupy and how you're treating those spaces. And in your case, your background is mixed, so you grew up 
uh, your father is white and your mom is black. And so it was a kind of a mixed race person, kind of how along alongside all the overeating and teasing uh, or the <laughs> what kind of how did that affect your childhood and kind of how you uh, were made aware of your identity from a really early age and how to navigate that? Um, well, it was really a it really made you think or made me think um, about where I belong. You know, you see um, largely as a young person um, groups, especially in school settings that are sort of all white. And then you see settings of kids being social amongst each other who are all black or colored, you know, and that um, was my um, education and sort of upbringing. Um, so through that, I've got sort of these, um, experiences that happen early in life that are quite, you know, foundational or seminal, maybe is what you would say to my understanding of, um, my place in the world and how others see me and how I saw myself. That was really sort of, um, were eye-opening experiences at a young age that you don't really think about, you know, I don't think many young people are just like, who am I? Where do I belong? What am I doing? Um, you'd be surprised, but so, yes. yeah, that's true too. You know, I'm, I'm just speaking, I guess for myself. So that's very true that a lot of people have, um, experiences like this, but, but I remember about their race. Yeah. But I remember, um, being chased. So I used to ride my bike from my house to borders to go look at magazines, very visual person. I would go look at magazines, anything I would go learn how to draw, uh, draw different like magna and like dragon ball z and stuff so i'd go ride my bike to borders and um i remember one day i was just biking down by the va hospital in long beach on bellflower and all of a sudden you know i start hearing these people like yelling at me and it was a group full of all white boys skinhead um shaved heads and they were just calling me nigger and they were they were chasing me down the street and i got really uh really scared but i was really confused at the first time though that was probably the first time i've ever been called nigger and i was just kind of like me you know because huh. again i uh being mixed you're kind of like in this limbo you know and so this is the first time of hearing like a serious label one that i've known but very derogatory um they chased me all the way to borders ended up like almost hitting me once I got into the borders parking lot. But uh, the the weirdest thing happened. Like I dropped my bike in front of their car and they had stopped and I put oh, my can... hands up and I was, I was crying. And, uh, and then I look over and there's this construction worker who's holding his, I'm not even kidding. Like he's holding his nail gun, like a gun aiming it at the car. It's this white man. And he's like, leave him alone. Like what is going on? And the guy ends up uh, taking me, loads my bike into his truck and ends up driving me home and I'm just crying. But I'm looking at this man like, you could be someone who's just the same. You know, it was just a total mind-warping experience of like being vilified and saved to some extent or helped mm -hmm. by people of the same race, which is, you know, a mind. Which is also half your was, race. Yeah. Which is also half mine. And then I've got experiences of, you know, uh, growing up by the beach and surfing and then paddling out. And a friend of mine, um, you know, largely that's a predominantly white sport now, even though it has um, indigenous and colored roots. Um, 
and just being yelled at, fouling out into the lineup saying, black people don't surf. So it became this world where you didn't really fit either um, sort of skin, you know? It was just became this other. Right. Well, I mean, you so, talked a little bit about the the treatment from white people, and I, I, I do want to kind of talk more about your experience with, with some of these sports. Um, what about how black people treated you? Um, I was uh, a, largely a white boy. <laughs> um, right. I was into skateboarding. I surfed, and I played ice hockey from a young age. So nothing that's, that's that the was, craziest part. Yeah. Nothing that really would, um, you know, I didn't, I just, uh, those were the sports that I somehow came to participate in and loved, um, playing. So, um, largely that left me out of that sort of, um, I would say typical black experience of sport. Um, and so, yeah, I was the white boy and, um, or the kid with good hair, or they they that light skinned, and um, <laughs> so it was just a lot of names, and then also being fat, and so it was a lot. But um, you well, know, that's well, I, I don't. Go ahead. Well, I think a lot of us, especially who grew up in environments uh, uh, with any amount of privilege, or where we did things that were not typically associated with blackness like some of that's like being in honors classes or like you know i grew up playing tennis yeah uh and it was interesting to to like have to kind of second guess your own blackness i mean thankfully i was raised by like old black people uh my parents (laughs) uh, who 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 certainly never let me forget how black i was and how black i would always be um but i think that is a there is a tension there and i they think especially when you're growing up and you're isolated you're playing ice hockey and you're surfing and skateboarding like i can't i can't think of a more uh different experience than like what you'd typically associate with a black kid from long beach yeah and similar to you you know i have a very strong uh black mother who's pushed me in everything but you know similar to what you were saying um we used to celebrate when we would have like the family over or some type of small family reunion, we would actually celebrate Kwanzaa and, you know, learn about that. And because I had an uncle who was, uh, who would celebrate that. And I still have uncles who, um, who celebrate that. So it was just all kind of an interesting mix of culture. And then also trying to be like, well, what is this? And what am I, and what am I supposed to be? Um, in the in the eyes of sort of maybe a society you know of how you're supposed to act well that's interesting i mean yeah so from a young age your identity was this kind of source of exploration and meaning and confusion um and it's it's interesting to keep pair that up with your experiences playing sports i mean i'm not sure how typical of a background for artists that is i mean you are also a collegiate athlete uh at syracuse which is you know a that's where my brother also went hey lynn um big orange uh but you also were athlete playing crew uh or rowing i should say and that's i mean i can't and i went to yale so you know about our team and i just can't imagine a place that's like less black than like a rowing event (laughs) so like talk about that and on top of (laughs) that you're at syracuse so like how did that and having had these kind of you know uh, formative experiences in Long Beach, like going to the East Coast and going to that campus and playing that sport, like how did that kind of deepen or even maybe further confuse your 
uh, kind of self-identity. Yeah, um, I think I'd like to say first, one of the great things of sport is um, it was a nice, I don't, I don't ever want to say it's a, it's a level playing field in terms of um, racism or colorism or any sort of ism, but there is something about, you know, going into a sport and being a part of a team with a collective interest in putting in hard work to uh, attain a goal of winning. I, maybe that was my huge, uh, my love for it is that, I wouldn't say it was ever left behind that I was the one black kid, but I felt like if I came here, I put in the work um, and I'm helping to improve myself and my team. You know, I think anyone can collectively get behind that. And I don't, I wouldn't say I really experienced anything on any team, especially hockey or um, in the rowing world um, that really, other than my notion of just seeing pretty much only white people, I, I was never really uh, had an experience like a racist experience. So I'd like to say that about um, maybe my interest in sport. Um, but it goes back to after playing hockey, I got very large again, and my mom rode at um, Cal Berkeley. Oh wow! And she made and she made me go row, and uh, and it ended up sort of being a life changing experience. One that actually probably saved my life in terms of health. It got me. You know, I finally was able to lose weight and um, become um, um, physically fit. But also it led me into a world of, you know, Syracuse, predominantly white. Um, and then the notion of just a higher education, you know, um, which has been um, so invaluable to me. Um and so when you were at Syracuse, so, yeah, I would say. Well, I would like to say just for everyone who's listening, like you can't see Martin right now, but there's like no aspect of him at the moment where I would have assumed that he was ever overweight. He's very, very much in shape. <laughs> uh, and so it's interesting to hear because you never really know what kind of experiences have led to to kind of someone's current um, state. Uh, so when you uh, you you mentioned earlier that you kind of started drawing, and you were obviously a really visual and creative kid. When did you begin to uh, kind of transition into this identity as an artist, as opposed to just someone who was creative and who was mostly focused on sports? Like, when did that transformation occur? I'd have to say, honestly, it was because um, I've always been creative and I thought the most creative thing that I could possibly do in life um, for a job, you know, when you have to start thinking about, okay, what am I going to do if I'm not going to be a professional hockey player or a pro anything? Um, I went to Syracuse and I was interested in, uh, doing advertising, like creative advertising and marketing. Um, I went there for, uh, communications and I thought that would sort of be my path into a creative life. I ended up after Syracuse getting a job when I started, um, training with the U S national team post Syracuse. Um, I got a job at Chesapeake energy. They just had opened up a, a uh, national development center for the men's rowing team. And I got a job at Chesapeake energy, uh, a natural gas driller out there in Oklahoma city. And I was just so happy to be a part of their creative um, resources department. After two years, 
Um, I love Oklahoma City, and I'm thankful for everything that it gave me. But I was really just like, I need to get out of here. I'm not a nine to five desk person, cubicle person, um, corporate person at all. I didn't, I didn't um, fit that mold, and it led me down a dark path. But in that, um, I started. I started painting again, um, and it really led me to say, you know, this is my call. Um, this is what I'm going to do for my with the rest of my life. And what was the subject matter initially? Subject matter was, um, I would say, icons and um, black people skateboarding, surfing. Um, Portraiture, really. I would say portraiture has always been fundamental, and it's it's been fundamental to my practice, and it's something that I've done from I, since I can remember. Um, portraiture is always something, and it's something that you know. It's how I met you, you know, um, right through the work that you've collected of mine, which I'm very appreciative of. But um, about the face, I think the face just re- it's just something that is infinitely um, interesting to me. And you can capture so much and you can say so much. Um, and so um, portraiture has been sort of this uh, central to my art practice. Well, yeah. And so to clarify how we met is that I was with another artist friend of mine, Phil America. And we had uh, we were at this kind of monthly event at the California African-American Museum. And, you know, we're kind of looking around. It's a great show. And we see this guy who's got... I believe it was a t-shirt with Rihanna, like an obviously hand-painted Rihanna on the front. And I feel like yeah. I didn't go up to you. I think Phil is actually the one who was like, did you do that? And you're like, yeah, I do that. And we followed you on Instagram. Yeah. And then I was like, well, that's a really incredible way to kind of, because I mean, I focused a lot on kind of making art more accessible. Right. Uh, and so it was, I thought it was a kind of clever way of um, creating something that where you could bring your practice around with you. Uh, especially in the yeah. setting that we were in. And so I was going to an a event at the Marciano Foundation for uh, Planned Parenthood for their Sexy Beast event. And I got yeah. you to paint a portrait of Anita Hill. And I believe this is really around the same time as uh, the Kavanaugh hearings. And so I really wanted to make that statement about, you know, this is, this is not new. You know, uh, right. and she kind of honored the struggle that she, I think, went through and, and didn't really get the kind of outcry and support that we're seeing now. And so I think, how do you use your portraits, especially in like, you know, a wearable medium to kind of make a statement about our culture? I, I, I know that you've painted other, uh, like James Baldwin and, and some other kind of figures. Uh, how, given our, has that, has that been impacted by our climate at all? The fact that you try to, who you select to work with? Um, yeah, I, I definitely want to work with people who have done, you know, amazing things and who have challenged, um, either norms or just ways of going about their lives. Um, I think for me, that whole portrait series, again, uh, to sort of touch on what you said, it was about, I'm always about challenging this hierarchy or structure of, um, superiority in a way. And art has a very it's all about hierarchy, you know, um, 
So I, I was very interested in breaking down that wall of making a high art piece that was also wearable. It had a function, which typically in fine arts is kind of like a, ta- a taboo thing. But um, so that's where the that really came from. But I'm also very interested in um, how political art can be, but also fashion. So I could bridge all these sort of different things together to create, you know, a wearable artwork that really spoke to a lot of different things. Um, but sub, as far as subject matter, you know, I'm very interested in um, in people who have done amazing things and, or who have inspired me in, um, in some way. All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show. And we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love, and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sotapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street from Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. But that's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. So you're the first guest. You're actually the only guest that we'll have this month um, who is a man, you know, or... um, and uh, I think that, you know, experiencing the world as a black man is a very uh, fraught thing. Uh, no matter if you're mixed or you're gay or you're straight or whatever it is, it's always going to be something that uh, poses a problem. So how has that been for you in terms of the, of the art world, um, which can be especially unwelcoming to black people at times? Um, we've heard from some other, from female artists, kind of how has that structured your journey? Um, for me, um, I would say that my, my biggest thing is about getting myself out there. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific, you know, experience that I've had. What was interesting to me is when I started, um, going out to these art events or galleries or to museums, um, you know, I thought of this art world as this very like high sort of elite place. And, you know, I think for the people who are buying the art, that's probably true. But when you go to these events, I mean, you're meeting a lot of different people. Um, and I've I've really come to enjoy sort of the art world. It, it really broke the stereotypes of what I had of it down. Um, and... I've realized that it's quite small. You know, you meet a lot of people, you can talk to a lot of people. And it was maybe in the sense of how, 
um, sports was for me it, that we all sort of unified around this one sort of cause of a creative um, sort of endeavor or or life that was all about um, creativity. Um, I wish I could share something. I would just say that there are places. I would say the Underground Museum, Residency Art, um, Papillion Gallery, which is closed, which was in Inglewood, where I saw my first Noah Davis um, show of his amazing paintings, who was a founder of the Underground Museum. I would say those are quite special and sort of um, divine places, though. Those have those are really spaces um, made by people of color and really have an audience of people of color that I think are um, incredible. And so I would I would like to, to share that as my experience of coming into art world that those spaces um, are amazing places for people of color or anybody who's interested in the arts. But those are sort of sacred spaces, I would say, for um, black creatives. Yeah, I, I mean, the Underground Museum is you know, one of the best places in L.A. for art, period. Um, it's also one of the few spaces that is produced by black creative people, but is also has formal relationships with larger institutions, like their relationships with the MoCA. Um, yes. I, and like, I think that it's... Uh, do you see a lot of that where you're seeing uh, traditionally non-black, non-colored spaces going the extra mile to uplift these spaces? I mean, and is there concern about, you know, I think there might be skepticism in the Black creative community that they are, you know, there's the, they're just trying to appropriate or kind of get something that's cool, but not actually offer substantial support for it to kind of grow as an institution. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and it could be a fad, but I think it's long overdue. I think, um, you know, people of color, and of all genders have put in a lot of work. I mean, you go back to just the use of uh, those cultures of color um, in as influences to creatives, especially white males. You know, I think I think it's long overdue. I think it should be done, and I think it deserves that recognition. Um, to ask if it's sincere or not, I would hope so, but. Um, as far as going deeper than that, um, I think it deserves to be, but I don't know what their true intentions are. But and it's it, nice to see, you know, because I think this this should be seen and it should be recognized that you know amazing things are happening in this community that have been happening. For that have quite been a happening. Time. Yeah, that have been happening. Um, and I think is your. I mean, I'm sure that the you know everyone's experience is different. You know, I think every black experience is different. But you as a, uh, a light-skinned kind of mixed-race man kind of navigating this, uh, do you, like, how do you think that that sets you apart? Or how have you kind of noticed that that is its own kind of special experience versus, you know, maybe someone who is, I, I don't want to say fully black. That's not, you know, what I mean. I mean, like, someone who's not mixed. Right. I would just, I look at, you know, my practice as a very um, personal introspection into my experience that, that I think a lot of people can connect with this idea of other or this idea of um, having an identity that um, 
is across and that spans a vast spectrum of many things that you are. And I think we're in a time period that really speaks to that, where you have people who are really um, outgoing and they're very upfront about who they are now, which I think is quite beautiful, which um, has a lot to do with the work that I am producing, you know, from the different body shapes that I'm using to the, to using different colors um, in the work that all speaks. It has these racial undertones, but it also aspires to um, really challenge um, identity in the sense of being labeled as just black, just white, which is a social contract construct anyways. Um, but I think it all speaks to this idea that people now are really, um, you know, just being themselves and loving themselves for it. And I think we're in a time that is really celebrating that. Um, well, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Like, I think in, like, maybe the circles that we occupy, we're also in California. Um, people are maybe feel more accepted or that it's more, more safe to kind of drop pretensions and kind of be authentic. I think we're like living in the era of authenticity. I'm using air quotes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think that like, that's a, that's a pretty privileged space too. Cause I think a lot of people, there's a huge backlash to that. You know, I mean, I wasn't planning on us talking about this, but and this will date the episode, but this Jesse Smollett thing, you know, yeah. uh, which is like been, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, I understand exactly what's happened there. Um, but it definitely seems like something fishy has happened. And I, I, I remember the initial reaction that I and many, many other people had where we're like, this guy is rich. This guy is a famous actor. This guy is like in Chicago. This guy is beloved. Mm -hmm. And like, even he is like vulnerable to like walking down the street, getting bleached and noosed. It didn't seem outside of the realm of possibility because it happens. It does happen to people all the time, obviously. But it just seemed yeah. like we're like, you know, we're actually not that far away or we're actually not, we haven't progressed that far. This will happen. Uh, and now you see that the fact that it, maybe it had been fabricated, you see so many people out there who are like, see, this whole thing is overblown. These gays, these blacks, they're complaining about everything. They're, you know, we're living in this time period where these aren't even really issues anymore. Uh, I think there is a tension there. I think there is a lot of people who are like brave enough to step forward when they may not have been in the past, but there's a lot of people who, hate that or who yeah. think that because that's true, it means that we progress so much further than we really have. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, I think there's always that duality, right. Of both narrative of experience one that, you know, I can sit here and talk to you about my experience and then you can bring up that one that I might not have that much information of, but is equally, um, important. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I just think that, like, you know, I think there's certain people that would look, uh, I mean, like, the whole, this whole discussion of colorism, you know, which we've, you know, begun to kind of, I think, deal with a little bit more directly. Uh, and how do we, how do we celebrate equally all the types of beauty of black people, not just the Holly Berries and the, uh, you know, um, Harry Belafonte's, but also, like, the Lizzo's and the, you know, Grace Joneses and the Marseille Martins and the, you know, and, and the RuPaul's. So I yeah. think that like, that is something that we are having a little bit in, internally in terms of the black community, how it's talking in uh, amongst them itself. I think there's that discussion. Um, how has colorism entered kind of 
did, would, how is it, is, is that conversation present in your work currently or, or do you have plans to make, to address that? Cause I mean, obviously yes, worked, it is. Um, yeah. It is because, you know, from as long as I can remember, people have been asking me, what am I, you know? Um, and that's just a, that question um, that people have always asked is, is an interesting one to me about, well, for one, I think I'm human, um, but I can't negate the fact my skin color, right? I, I can't, that's just, that's one of the first things that people see. I mean, that's just undeniable, um, which has a great influence on my work because I have continuously been like, you know, but what are you? Like, um, are you black? Are you white? You know, what is it? So this question made me question myself, but through, you know, these experiences, learning my history, um, both from my mother's side and, you know, my father's side, um, but especially my mother's of, you know, I'm not too, um, far away from, you know, relatives who, have worked in people's houses, washing their clothes. And, you know, that, that even runs deeper to, um, you know, I'm sure slaves. So I, uh, I think it's interesting that duality of what a person can be, but, and then have that history, but have it not be recognized or have it be questioned based on the color of my skin, you know, um, as far as it trickling into my work, I would say a lot of my work is split in half. And it really asks this question, can this one unified artwork that is two different colors, that has two different sides, that has two different shapes, can that be looked at and understood as a valuable, beautiful um, being, as an entity, as something that is socially acceptable, something that is kind of undefined, that challenges your notion of being able to be labeled as black or white? Can this artwork be looked at as a beautiful one-of-one representation, however abstract or figurative it it is, can it be um, valued? And that's really my sort of view on life and talking about the Smollett case and the countless, you know, people of color that we have seen killed in different aspects, either by it be police activity or, you know, just the, our overpopulation in jails, you know, it's really, this work is really asking, you know, what is valued? How can we value these people? Um, and how can we look at them as beautiful? I mean, these are, we are one of one beings. Um, and we all deserve to have that opportunity to be loved, to be, um, accepted and, and, you know, to, to, to be represented. Yeah. yeah. To thrive. Well, I mean, I am a glad, I think in one, in one sense, like I, I, I think that we're going through like a really wonderful period of time. Like you mentioned that, you know, where these institutions are opening up where, uh, we are seeing kind of partnerships between communities that have, you know, never been formed before. A lot of that, I think, is formed, though, out of opposition to the backlash of it. Like, if like I mentioned this in one of the other episodes, I think it's like, if there's one, you know, good thing about Trump, it's that he's unmasked a lot of people's true colors, and he's made other people forge partnerships and coalitions that, you know, are hopefully strong enough to stand up to him and stand up to the people who support him. Uh, how do you think, like, 
this political environment, specifically in the last couple of years, I think a lot of Black creatives are sitting here thinking like, it's not enough to do cute. It's not enough to do pretty and like beautiful. You know, what is my, how is my work helping with the struggle? You know, and, and even if that help is just getting people to think more deeply about these issues and like, how do, mm-hmm. how, how does your work in your mind, like when you approach like a new project, like your upcoming show, which we'll, we'll get to, kind of what are the questions that you're asking yourself about the external environment, not just the internal? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it comes back to, for me, it's about representation. You know, it's about showing that these this thing is beautiful, that this thing is worthy. Um, in terms of Trump, I think that there, I mean, well, one, he's just given people so much material to work with. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's really a topic for me that is uh, quite deep um, because it has, you know, its present day context and it has its historical context. And like you said, it's sort of just like we feel like we can take two steps forward, but there's always the sense that there's something that takes us two steps back or something that just brings us back to like, oh, you know, this racism is still here. It's still prevalent, even though we felt like we've come so far. Um, and you could look at that just in electing Barack Obama for eight years and now having Trump sort of like, if you, if you understand what he is talking about and then the experience of people of color, you would take that as, you know, two steps forward and now a big step back. Right. Um, so in the sense of how this informs my, um, my work, um, I would say I focus heavily on the injustices that happen and continue to happen um, within those communities of color, whether it be from, you know, his border wall and this idea that my, this migration is just this huge um, um, problem and his idea that he can just... Um, what is it he wants to create the the bill so that he can just use military funding to build the wall, yeah, right? Yes. And sort of bypass all this stuff. Um, and his use of just vulgar language and, um, you know, just racist talk towards, you know, these people. It's, uh, it's all just, it's rhetoric, right? It's just rhetoric that um, is quite damaging. So I'm trying to highlight these sort of experiences that go on daily and bring light to the injustice, but also show that these are like, you know, people with a mission to sort of better their lives. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, you live in Long Beach, which is, and you're from Long Beach, you live there now. And that's one of the communities that I think is fairly integrated um, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I, my, my very few experiences with Long Beach are probably all gay pride. Uh, and it's like, yeah. it's the best pride. I mean, better than New York, better than San Francisco. Yeah. Insofar as you see like a cornucopia of diversity, uh, that is really, really celebrated and authentic and it's Latin and it's black and it's, you know, trans and it's everybody and everyone's mm-hmm. having a good time. Um, and I, I think that like, it's a, characteristic of that city that hopefully we can protect um i want to talk about your upcoming show but i also want to kind of talk about the kind of changing feel of a lot of these communities like you you know Mm -hmm. 
I think that it's it's going to be interesting. You have the Olympics coming in ten years, right? And that's part of that's going to be cited in Long Beach, and you know the development and the gentrification and the kind of uh, capital late stage capitalism tactics that you know are already underway there are going to just be accelerated. So kind of like specific to your community, like how do you feel, you know, black creatives stand to survive these changes? Long Beach has cultivated um, a lot of really amazing I, black creative people. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I think an artist does is, you know, we create beauty, we um, define, we redefine, we challenge what is beauty. And I think that uh, is also comes to and is brought into these communities in which we live or in which we work. Um, so, yes, you know, gentrification or the... And all that is a um, product of sort of, I would say, what artists do, but also what you would say the commercialization of an area. So, um, you know, and that's going on. You can see that in the rental prices. Long Beach is probably still one of the cheaper and last maybe somewhat affordable of the beach cities that are in L.A. County. Um, I think the Olympics is probably an amazing opportunity for um, – you know, for business, but at the same time, it it leaves a lasting mark on the 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 communities of color who are then you know pushed out or even just underrepresented in that celebration of sport. And um, can we afford the tickets of this? How is it going to in fact impact you know a working man's or and working woman's you know life? Do, whether it be through their travel, how are they going to commute around the city, what's going to happen um, to sort of just their lives and how and how it all works. One, it'll probably create jobs, and one, it will displace people. Um, yeah, and erase and people. Sort of- I think that that's, a, that's the thing I'm most concerned about. I mean, yes, populations will change over time, but, like, there won't even be – my one of my worries is that there's not even going to be any – like traits of what used to be there. So not only will these people no longer be there, it's like the evidence and the kind of, there will be no durability about kind of the culture that Long Beach represents. Um, and that this happens in city after city where, you know, the artists come, the developers come, and then before you know it, like everything that made that neighborhood, uh, especially a neighborhood of color special or, or positive is gone. You know, and I think the artists yeah. are the ones who, you know, are often tasked on both ends, right? Both moving in when it's shitty and making it cool yeah. and creative, but then also brought in after that's all been erased and trying to kind of put that back there again, you know? Um, right. So, yeah. So, I don't yeah. know the answer. I mean, if I did know the answer, I would have that podcast. <laughs> but Yeah. It's like we can come in, raise the property value, make it beautiful and cool, and then once we're priced out of it and all the culture is priced out of it, now we sort of look to these grants or these you know corporate sort of um, calls or proposals for artists to come in and hey, uh, we pushed it a little too far towards the you know um, sterilization of this area. Can you inject it with a mural and? And stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely understand that idea of of um, erasure. Um, of erasure. So, so I want to talk about your upcoming show, um, 
it opens March 16th. Uh, so it's a little bit over a month away. So kind of tell us, you know, where that is and kind of what the, what we can expect with that. Yeah. So I am happy to have a show. I'll be showing with, um, Hallie Nickerson and, uh, we will be in Copecan gallery, which is on La Cienega in Culver city. Um, so it's a, I'm so happy to be a part of it. Our friend storm Asher, who, um, works at the gallery as a curator. She also is the owner and curator founder of Superposition Gallery, which is how I first came to start working with her. She's a young, also mixed race um, woman artist who has just taken the initiative to really try to focus on artists of color and uh, female artists and, and give them a platform to show and present their work. And she does it in a really interesting, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent on Storm. No, but, um, but I think her gallery superposition is very interesting in that, um, you know, she really goes through this pop-up sort of um, business model of coming in for a weekend or two, putting on this show, um, inviting people of that neighborhood to come celebrate and um, look at the artwork of sort of people that I would say look are the people who live in those areas. Um, so it's a, I'm just happy to be a part of it with her and um, Hallie. And so we're putting on a show, we're working on show titles. Um, but we, we, me and Hallie as artists both share um, that we're very much about identity um, in our art and sort of understanding our, our identities through sort of a, through our experiences and culturally how you know you, you just learn how to be something by watching others right you know maybe you learn how to be black or act black or i shouldn't say that yeah you learn how to do that but you there there are you these mimic, you mimic social yeah you mimic social cues on you know what we do this is how we do things um so i think it'll be a great show just in terms of two artists of color um you know, really trying to ask questions about um, identity and beauty and uh, things like that. So I'm very excited to uh, be a part of that. In terms of the work itself, can you kind of describe a little bit about your process, like your fabrication process and kind of what you're trying to create with this show? Okay, so in terms of actually creating my work, I uh, employ a lot of different materials. I use EPS foam. I uh, use wood. I use I've for this show. I'm implementing mirrors, um, and I use resin. So for me, I'm all about trying to make these artworks that are also of other that sort of defy. You know, someone having lived a life where people are just always like, "Where are you?" is sort of important to me to make artwork that also asks, "What are you?" You know, so I don't want you to be able to come in contact with my work and be like, oh, this is a painting. This is a sculpture. Um, I really want to play with that idea of what is this? And maybe it's sort of my reversal, my role reversal of through my art practice, I can now be like, well, what are you? It's my opportunity to ask that question to other people and of other people. Um, so yeah, I just a multidisciplinary artist who uses a lot of things to really challenge um, how you would identify or um, classify my work. Well, the undefinable 
Martin Alexander. Uh, how do I pronounce? Martin Alexander Spratlin Edom. Spratlin Edom. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Martin. This was a really a wonderful discussion. Um, please, everyone, go who is in the Los Angeles area, and if you're not in the LA area, get yourself to the LA area, and uh, we will definitely support this upcoming show. And we just really appreciate you taking the time, Martin. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Thank you again for joining me on this episode of State of the Art, Exploring the Black Creative. You can learn more about Martin by visiting his website at mace-studio.tumblr.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at mace.studio. If you're in the LA area, please check out Martin's upcoming show at Copacan Gallery in Culver City, which opens on March 16th. Thank you for listening and make sure to tune in for our final episode on this series next week with Lauren Halsey.